But we are going to be using this tool that we've used in the past. It's called Menti. So if you, if you, and you don't need to use it, but it'd be more fun the more people play. So if you have your phone, go to menti.com, M-E-N-T-I.com, and it'll ask you for a code, and that code is on screen. That is 745278. And what that's going to do is that's going to allow you to ask questions and to kind of engage in some things as we build a summary of Ephesians together. Um, so when you get there, 745278. And the way it works is on every slide, you could ask a question. Anytime. So anytime during this hour or whatever, something occurs to you, you're like, oh, what the heck is the deal with that? Or what did you guys mean when you said this? Or why didn't you address the fact that Paul says this, and I don't get that. Whatever it is, and we'll collect questions. And then, th- really, we can do this. We can do whatever we want. So we can do this for just one week. We can do two weeks. We can do three weeks. Whatever we, ch- whatever we choose to do. But, I want, but just the fact that we went through Ephesians so quickly, just so, there's so much that we kind of left behind. That, or things that we did cover that may have baffled or confused or dismayed you even. And so we want to be able to have a chance to talk about that. Um, so we'll get there. But before we get to your question, so you can, so we've already got, uh, no, no questions. Or seven hearts. I don't know if those are questions or hearts. But um, you can make your questions known through that thing. But before we get there, I want to do a real recap of the book. I want you to do a recap of the book, chapter by chapter. So we're going to build some word clouds. The way the word cloud works is that you can enter anything you want. And if what you say matches exactly what somebody else says, then it, it shows up on the screen bigger. Right? So, you know, if you say... Jesus is Lord, and you say Lord, those aren't the same thing. They wouldn't show up the same. So generally when you do a word cloud, you want to use like one or two word phrases. So I'd like to go through chapter by chapter and just ask you, what's chapter one about? Or what are the key ideas in chapter one? And then we'll do chapter two, just to kind of refresh what's the book about. We'll talk about it as we go. And then when we're all done that, then I'd love to interact with what kind of whatever is intriguing or, or, or you know, that you've got that you wonder about in Ephesians. Okay? So Josh, first question is... Um, what do you want to discuss from Ephesians? That's the generic. That's, that's all week long, or I mean all hour long. Second question is, what are the big ideas of Ephesians 1? So just go back, and you're welcome to cheat. Like if you have a Bible, just look at it. What's Ephesians 1 about? And we're going to build a word cloud, and then we'll just kind of, we'll just hit to each one of these for just a few minutes, and then we'll get into your questions. Once we've loaded into our minds what Ephesians is even all about. And while you're doing that, I'll say Ephesus was a really important city, and this is a really important letter. Ephesus was one of the major places um, that Paul traveled in the New Testament, and the things that he communicates are really very profound. So chapter 1, yes, this is all, you guys probably shouldn't look. Don't look at the screen, it'll influence you. What's your own answer to that? In fact, um, hit H, Josh, see what happens if you type H. Yeah, okay. So let's just do that in the beginning. Let's give everybody like 30 seconds of solo work, and then we'll, we'll reveal what they're saying here. What was chapter 1 about? And like I said, if you've got an actual Bible, take a look. Like, it's helpful. I'm a huge fan. I love macro. Like, I love getting into the, what's the actual word, but being able to kind of get above the thing and see it. Like, what is the, what is the flow of the argument through Ephesians? It would be really valuable valuable for you to see that. So go ahead and unhide that, Josh. So predestination, election, blessing, living like Jesus, reconciliation, the praise of his glory, um, adoption, redemption, chosen, predestined. Uh, excellent. Okay, now so what's interesting here is predestination is getting the biggest answer, probably because it's the most confusing and the baffling thing. And in fact, Ephesians 1 is one of what we would call the chair passages on the doctrines of election. So, and if that's not, we can talk about that if you have questions about it. Um, although that's the kind of thing that we could spend like four weeks uniquely talking about or, or longer. But um, the heart of Ephesians 1 isn't so much, predi- so much predestination. I might say, it was on here, so whoever said blessings in Christ or the praise of his glory, I think those are actually really good like high level answers. It opens up with six spiritual blessings that we have in Christ and the theme of that is to the praise of his glory. That all these other things are things that he has poured out on us so that he would be given praise for something that hit my eye. He would be given praise forever and ever. So it's a list of all this amazing stuff that we have if we're in Christ so that we would spend eternity praising him. Everything he's done throughout all of history, creating the world, redeeming the world, is so that undeserving people 
could have a chance to not only behold his supremacy, but actually enter into it. So that's really Ephesians 1. Lots of great stuff. Okay, let's do the same game for Ephesians 2. Okay, we begin with, we come out of the gate, there's blessings we have in Christ, and we can talk about election if you want. Chapter 2. This is, uh, well, I'll, I'll share my, I'll save my thoughts for a second while you guys think. I think that this chapter is so important. Half of it is known and loved, and half of it, I would say, is unfortunately neglected. And we want to try to sew those things back together. Chapter 2, skim through. What was going on there? There's a verse that you probably have heard before. Probably one of, one of those, I don't know, is it the top 10? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? Certainly top 20, Quig, don't you think? Like, if you've ever shared the gospel with somebody or you've ever seen somebody create a summary of the gospel, they probably went to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is kind of one of our go-tos. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, then no one should boast. All right, let's go ahead and unhide. Ephesians 2 is about grace. Not a bad answer, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's probably what you're thinking of. Reconciliation, yes. Okay, where his workmanship is verse 10. We often stop chapter 2 at verse 9. But if you go on to verse 10, it's for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That word is poema, where his masterpiece, his poem uh, our identity in Christ. Let's see. Are we getting? Okay, there we go. You can kind of see it up there. Horizontal redemption. Unmerited favors, grace, grace through faith, identity in Christ, saved by So lots of grace in various forms. And then we got that horizontal reconciliation. That's the missing part. The chapter one, or I'm sorry, chapter two, the first nine verses are about vertical reconciliation, that we are reconciled to God. But really 11 through 16 is that we are reconciled to each other. It's a huge theme. And in fact, it was latent but not obvious even in chapter 1. Paul, you, you watch the pronouns in Ephesians. Sometimes he says we and sometimes he says you. Generally speaking, we are Jews and you are a Gentile. And so he begins, if you go through and you look at those spiritual blessings in chapter 1 and say, we have this and we have this and we have this and we have this and you get to come too, you European, okay? That's what he's saying, is that you non-Jew, you are partakers of all of it. And that is a major argument here through chapter 2, right? That you who once were excluded from Christ, you've been brought near. And it's strange to us because you're like, in your world, Every Christian you know is a Gentile, and that seems normal. And the idea that a Jew is a Christian is like, well, how does that work, right? It's exactly the opposite of that as the church is being born. Everybody, every believer is a Jew by definition. And then somebody brings in a Gentile, and everybody loses their minds. And Paul says, no, 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 this is how it's meant to be. We are a multi-ethnic community of people living holy lives in adoration of him. All right, that's really the argument that really becomes really strong in Ephesians 2. How about chapter 3? This might get a little trickier for you. Don't know. We'll see if answers wane as we get through the book. But go to the next one, Josh. And hide them. Ephesians 3. If it helps you remember it, I think Brian taught this. Am I wrong? I think he did chapter 3. Always welcome to cheat. By the way, if you don't, I'm just realizing if you don't have Menti or you just don't like it and you want to shout out an answer, you're, you are allowed to speak. So you're welcome to do that too. If you want to be a Luddite about it and avoid all this technology, just go for it. Chapter 3, if you look at it while, while you're scanning through it, has a feature that is kind of almost the, the weird personality trait of Paul. You ever notice this? He does it all the time. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you gent... Uh, hang on a second. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known by revelation, as I've already written briefly. Do you see how he does that? He oftentimes will begin a thought, hang on a second, let me go back over here and do this instead. He shows up relatively often, and it's a little bit strange that in your final paper that's going to be like Holy Scripture for all of eternity, we get the, it's kind of the rough draft version of it. Like a normal person would be like, delete that part, 
and like put it all in. But but it the the text retains its own developmental nature. He does it here, Ephesians three one. He starts an argument, and then he what the, the pattern seems to be whenever he does that is he's saying something, and then it occurs to him, oh, it w- this would be more helpful to you if I change the sequence. So let me go back. Let me talk about something else. And then we'll come back and we'll do it again. He does it here. He does it at uh, Romans 5. Well, do, can you guys think, do you guys know other places? I'm not giving you a chance to play. Do you know, have you noticed this in Paul's letters? His interrupt, he interrupts himself. Do you know where? Can you think of other places? He's got one that goes for like five chapters. He just goes on and on and on before he finally gets back to his point. Anybody know where that is? Uh 2 Corinthians 2 is the right answer, Kelly, so good job. So 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 2, he interrupts himself and he doesn't, look at this one, it's really interesting. And you're still welcome to put up your, your Ephesians stuff. Go to 2 Corinthians 2, 2 co 2, and I don't know the verse, but I never know verses. He says, uh, Kelly, if you know the verse, tell me, but it's, let's see, uh, Okay, here we go. First, it's chapter 12. It's not as obvious. 2, 12, and 13. When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, I found that the Lord had opened a door for me, but I still had no peace of mind because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. And he's beginning to tell us the story of his journey to Macedonia. And then he realizes, hang on a second. I have a few more things I want to talk about. And then he talks about stuff for five chapters. And then if you keep your finger there and you go up to chapter 7, he's going to finally pick it up again. And he says... 7-5, as if there's been no interruption. For when we came to Macedonia, like we were talking about 30 minutes ago, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts us, comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, who again we were talking about in chapter 2, not only by his coming, but the comfort you gave him, da-da-da-da. He does it in Romans 5, you're right, Dan. Romans 5, beginning uh, as he's kind of arguing for essentially original sin, he realizes this is, this is too big of a thought. Let me go back and let me kind of like establish that. So it's, it's a funny trait in his letters. And it, what it shows us is that the Bible is not divine dictation, that Paul is just sitting there and like the spirit is moving his pen, but he's actually involved. There are two authors to this thing. God is sovereign over the whole thing and what we have is precisely what he wants, but he wrote it through real human beings who had real experiences and real understandings. It's a, it's a, if you understand the way inspiration of scripture works, it's really very fascinating. All right, chapter three, what'd you get? What is going on in Ephesians three? Josh, okay, spiritual strength, great. Yes, yeah, so how do we get this? How do we, how do we do all this? The mystery, more, and that mystery is this unification of Jew and Gentile into one body. That's super weird. Okay, you guys did not, say the same things as each other at all. Okay, mystery of the gospel, mystery revealed, mystery, mystery made known, mystery of Christ. That's good, but you're gonna get better hits if you just write mystery, okay? Um, Christ, the greatness of his love, that we're fellow heirs. That's again this concept. What he's doing in chapter three, really, what, what all this comes out as is he's deepening this argument that there's one multi-ethnic community of people, right? That's what he's doing. Vertical reconciliation anticipates horizontal reconciliation and of course it does because what is the great commandment that Jesus was asked Jesus give us one great commandment what's his answer love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and he sneaks in a second right love your neighbor as yourself if we try to reduce the gospel to one issue Jesus says you can't because it is always vertical and it is always horizontal. Ask me for one, and I will give you two. They both matter. And that's really the driving argument here in, in, in Ephesians, right? And so chapter 3 really unpacks it. Now chapter 3 is going to end. What, is, what does chapter 3 end in Ephesians, you guys? Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, there's a great big split, a cleft, right through the middle of the book. There's the first three chapters, and then there's the last three chapters. What, what's happening here? Do you know? That's it, theology and practical. It's a very common theme with Paul. Paul front loads with the data. Here's the information. Here's what you need to know. It's Romans, depending on how you slice the pie, Romans 1 through 8 or Romans 1 through 11, is, is doctrine. It's the orthodoxy. And then the second half, chapter 12, in Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4, is orthopraxy. This is what you gotta know, understand. And if you know and understand it, it's going to shape what you do. 
And so chapter 4 begins to give us what do we got to do. So, Joshua, next slide. What do we got to do as we move into application? And this stuff mattering on Monday. You learn it on Sunday, but it matters on Monday. What do we do? Okay, take a look at that. Recap that. number of different things. This chapter, although I think I taught chapter four, and I don't think I even mentioned the verses that I'm going to talk about right now, which is why we're doing this again, because it's too hard to cover everything in 22 minutes. So chapter four has got, has, I would say, the most important passage in the Bible on one particular topic that we didn't even mention. See if you come up with it. It has a fantastic depiction of the way sin works. It's actually really insightful and worth unpacking a little bit. Maybe we'll do that. Let's see what we got. Ephesians 4, what's going on there, you guys? Unity. Okay, and look at that. It just keeps coming up over and over again. And really, it's like, okay, if we're going to do this, how do we do it? So take a look at 4.1. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received what is that calling? It is to live in light of the vertical and the horizontal reconciliation. And per your word up here, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one, 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 one for all, 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 all. It's a huge idea in chapter four. It's how do we do it? Because the truth is, sometimes we don't like each other very much. Sometimes we're hard to love. And so how do we do this? How do I love somebody that sees the world through such a different lens? And it's some of these things you mentioned. How do we live a worthy life? Walk worthily the community. What does maturity look like? Okay, excellent. All right, here's what you did not say. The most important thing, mm, that's not, not the most important thing in Ephesians 4, but I think the most important passage on the definition of the church is in this chapter. And again, we didn't, we didn't hit it. Take, just take a look at it. By way of building this map of the book, he says, uh, da, 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 da. says, we'll pick it up in verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Those five roles here, they kind of exist on a spectrum. The apostles are kind of the missionaries. They're going to the unreached places. They're all about the dark places. Let's go to where we're not. And on the other side, you get the pastors and teachers, and they just want to stay right where we are and do a good job right here, right? Have you noticed this? We've got people that are like the innovators and the entrepreneurs and they get bored in two years and they want to go do something new those are the apostles and you get the guys over here that are like yeah I know there's a lot of blank spaces but that's not my problem I want to I want to crush it where I am I want to do a really good job I want to care right here it's like I want to go deep here and I want to go broad there and he gives us this continuum that God has ordained that they were, we need both we need somebody to go someplace else and we need somebody to do a good job and to care and he's given us this spectrum of persons to this end verse 12 to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ the church may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith our job Quig's job my job is to make sure that this community of people you are being built up to works of service you're not to be the audience that we stand on stage and perform for you our job is to equip you to enable you to send you out to do it so the whole thing we're all on the same team and as a church that's our job is to help you succeed all right that's really important chapter 4 verse 17 watch the hourglass of this follow this is going to be a little quick uh study on how to follow the words it's like a sat test or reading comprehension okay follow the flow of thought from verse 17 to 19 okay i want you to picture it happening i'll read it and then i want you to pull it apart so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, when you see Gentile, think irreligious, think pagan, think non-Jew, think Roman, think stone worshipers, okay? Don't live like the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separate from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. What you have there in those three verses is two distinct causal chains. 
There's an A that implies B, implies C, implies D. There's an A that causes B, which causes C, which causes D. What's the A moment? What is the first domino to fall in chapter 4, 17 to 19? It's a central argument in, what he's, in the case that he's making. Uh, no, that's actually the end goal. That's the end point of it. Okay, what, what word? Give me the words. Uh, nope, nope, nope. It's right in the middle. This thing flows from the center outward in two directions. What he's doing in the first half, he's saying this happened because this happened because this happened because of this. And also that caused this, which caused this, which caused this. The centerpiece of it is right in the middle. And we have, a, we have an intellectual blooming. And by blooming, I mean corrupting. And then we have a, a, a physical, sensual, sexual depravity that grows out of the same centerpiece. Look at it. Hardness of heart. That's it. So watch it. We'll, we'll do it backward. Okay? They have a hardened heart at the end of verse 18. And what, what is due to that is the ignorance that is in them. Right? There's an ignorance that is due to the hardening of the heart. So the hard heart is the cause and the uh, ignorance is the effect. Right? So there's an ignorance due to the hardness of heart. Not only was there ignorance, but there's separation from God and there's a darkness of understanding. So if you harden your heart, you get stupider and stupider. That's what he's saying. Okay, we begin with a hard heart. I don't like that that is true. I don't want it to be true. We're like, all right, game on. But all that's going to happen is you're going to get dumber and dumber and dumber until your thinking is futile. You can't make sense of things because it wasn't that you were stupid in the beginning. It's that you were stubborn. You were arrogant. You had a hard heart and you wouldn't listen. And if you don't listen, you're just going to like just get dumber as you go. He says, this is how the Gentiles think. This is how the unbelieving world thinks. And if you have ever, hear this, and so this, hear both sides of this. If you've ever read what's going on in the world, if you've ever engaged with people and you're like, how do you think that? Like, how does that make any sense to you? Okay, there's a couple of possibilities here. One possibility is that it doesn't make any sense because they've got hard hearts and they just, be, their, their, their rationality and their reasonableness is just spun into oblivion and it's no good, right? That's possible. But there's another possibility. And that is that you have a hard heart. And that it doesn't make sense to you because your thinking has become futile. So when, when you see this thing happening, don't assume I get it. That's because you have a hard heart. It might be that you do. And it's actually a little bit more profitable if you just kind of do the systems check. Maybe it's me. Maybe there are things that are true and good, but I can't see them because of not a, I'm, I didn't allow myself to see him. And you can get so cantilevered out in this thing that it's really hard to find your way back. But it's not only your intellect, but actually it flows out the opposite direction too. Look there, from the same starting point, hard heart, which is synonymous with losing sensitivity. You see those are the same thing. You lose all sensitivity. They give themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And this is just the nature of sin. Like a little bit's pretty good for now but I want more and more and more until things spin out of control. So he's giving us this hourglass. The center of it is the hard heart. It becomes more and more intellectually futile. And the center of it is this lost sensitivity, which, which corrupts and corrupts and degrades further. And he says, don't do that. You don't want to be like that. And if we're not going to end like that, we need to begin by having tender hearts that are willing to listen and to consider that maybe, just maybe, I'm wrong. You see why this fits into chapter four about getting, getting along with other people with whom we disagree? How do I do it? Well, I put down my weapons for a minute and I'm quick to listen. I'm slow to speak, slow to become angry so they don't end up in this dark place. Dig it? All right, that's chapter four. Let's go chapter five. Ephesians five. Josh, give us that. Now, Quig walked us through half of the chapter. We kind of generally did half a chapter each for each message. So Quig walked us, you might remember what Quig talked about. He skipped over what probably I would say Quig, Ephesians 5 was most famous for, wouldn't you think? I would say the other half is better known. And tell us what's going on in Ephesians 5. Big picture. Now, we're, again, we're still we're fleshing out this vision of a 
multi-ethnic community of people living holy lives in adoration of him. When we get to chapter 5, what do we have? Let's see what you got. All right, marriage. And that's, that's what I figured people would think of it because you, you, the, the place you most often hear Ephesians 5 taught is probably at a wedding. It's the great, great passage that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. I just performed a wedding yesterday up at Rockledge Mansion. Have you guys ever, do you know what that is? That's a gargantuan house directly underneath the star, the Roanoke star. You guys, it's like, lavish it's unbelievable and uh, I did a wedding up there and we were walking through Ephesians 5 so yes and love and yes submission is one of the subsets of that passage all true now I like quick how do you like that blue line brother because this is what quick preached on walk in love right and as quick walked us through the first half of Ephesians 5 isn't about marriage or parenting it's also do you have parenting you guys didn't even mention the parenting so this, the second half is these three relationships, marriage relationships, um, parent relationships, and then for us in a way that's just kind of confounding is the, parent, is the master-slave relationship. We can talk about that if you want. But the front half is this, walk in love. And Quig was essentially walking us through that it's really the, the call to holiness. If we are to be this community of people, how do we interact with each other? What is the place for coarse joking and sexual morality? And he was calling us on this because this is an area that is historically, like Christian sexual ethics has been a really important part of what God has called us to live. The world will live as it lives, but you, believers, you're to be weird and you're to be different. And Quig was challenging us to say, have we abandoned our own, our own scriptures, ethics on sexuality? So that's in there. Um, um, that's the, really that whole front half. And then as you say, personal relationships. Ah, I like this. Being filled with the Spirit is one of our key texts. Can anybody quote Ephesians 5, 18? How that goes, you can look at it if you don't have it in your brain. Go really loud. Lily, you got it? That's it. And that sounds like a strange, like, you know, don't eat jalapenos. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. But the reason he says don't be drunk on wine to be filled with the Spirit is because wine and the Spirit do the same thing. They both exert this invisible influence. If you are filled with wine, then the wine is going to be controlling you. It's going to be shaping you. You might be more boisterous than you otherwise would have been. You might be more confident than you deserve to be, right? This is what the wine is going to do for you. And he says, you know, there's that, but there's this. And I recommend this, that if you're filled with the Spirit, he'll give you confidence and courage and boldness and kindness and gentleness and patience and a whole bunch of other stuff and you want if you're going to be drunk on something be drunk on something that produces love and joy and peace and patience not regret and debauchery and and just dissolution right so be filled with the spirit it's one of these great commands we could talk about how to do that too if you want all right and then finally chapter six that's what we looked at this morning at least we kind of briefly touched so you really you better crush this one okay Ephesians 6, what is this final chapter of Ephesians about? We're building a vision. This is what God has done. He loves us. We are to love him back. We're to love his people. Here's how we do it. Here's how relationships work. And then we get to chapter 6. And it's like, oh, hang on a second. Because this might be harder than you realize. And you might be deceived. In fact, you are. So what is chapter 6 about? seconds all right quick we'll go whenever you want to go okay you get all the time you need okay the misspelled ones are quigs that's okay all right let's hear it josh big ideas of ephesians 6 armor of god that's a pretty good answer. and not not bad for a three-word thing spiritual warfare warfare absolutely armor Spiritual forces, the armor of God. See that these going to burn you every time on a word cloud. You can't put in any articles. Be strong, prayer, truth. Yeah, excellent. It's this. We need a big shield, the armor of God. It's all, all of this, the spiritual warfare. And the, and the place that it fits, as I was trying to say, is like, listen, guys, if we're going to build this, if we're going to be this kind of community where there's unity in the spirit, where we love each other, we've got to be not unaware of his schemes. And we are. Terribly unaware of his schemes. Are we thoughtful? How something that you might say or 
do? Have, did you pause to consider, how is this impacting people around me, right? Am I just functioning out of what I, do I say what I want to say, or do I measure my words in such a way that they can be received, that they'll persuade rather than alienate, that they might build relationship instead of tearing it down? And we live in a moment where it would seem that very seldom is that question being run, right? Are we aware that Satan is altogether too happy to throw a grenade in a room and to let it just do its thing? The unity of the spirit that is ours in Christ is struggling right now. We're allowed to disagree, we're allowed to persuade, but it seems that we do so in ways calculated not to woo and to win, but to alienate and defeat. And I think this must be part of his plan, part of the enemy's plan to do that, right? It's also the case that what Paul is trying to say, listen to what he says, he's really pretty clear on this. Verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What does that mean? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood? What does that mean? Just paraphrase that, put that in new words for me. Right, it's not between me and another human being, okay? Now, just tell me the truth, okay? You don't have to tell me who. But who this in the last seven days have thought, I hate that guy. He's ruining everything. Have you? You're lying, okay? Listen, like, we play this game all the time. And I don't care if you're on the left, if you're on the right, wherever you're at, everybody's like, my enemy is flesh and blood. And that I can point at him right now, right? And Paul says, no, 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 stop. I know you think it is. I know you think it is. Because our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Paul, Paul is a guy who had an awful lot of people with flesh and blood literally throw rocks at him, right? He was constantly being attacked by human beings, dragged out of cities, left for dead, all kinds of grief, all kinds of hostility thrown against Paul. And Paul's saying, listen, I know it seems like our enemy are these Jewish leaders, these Gentile, you know, opposition. But I'm telling you, it's not. They're chess pieces. The real, the real thing, our struggle is against the devil and, his, and all, his, all of his angels, all of his fallen angels. It looks like it's humans, but our job is to woo and to win human beings, not to crush and defeat them. They're not our enemy. They are the reason that God has left us on this earth. And we need to be awakened to that, that we are here not to defeat people, but to defeat Satan and win people that they might be loved so radically that they come to love God and love their neighbors too. And in Ephesians 6, he's really trying to help us. Because there's more going on than meets the eye. Be thoughtful, therefore, about what you say and how you say it and how you engage in the game. And then he says this. He ends the book essentially like this. Verse 19. I wish we had time to get into this. He ends Colossians in the same way. Oh, in fact, we'll look at Colossians because it captures the heart of Paul. Ephesians 6, 19. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. From which I note a couple things. Number one, if Paul needs prayer to be able to share the gospel with courage, then we do too. There may not have ever been anybody since Paul that lived life at the extremity of Paul. And he's like, you guys, sometimes I'm just too afraid to open my mouth. Will you pray for me that I won't chicken out on this mission? I mean, if Paul's afraid, y'all, you must be afraid. And you must be like tired of taking the hit. I think it's also significant that for us, increasingly, we, I was just talking to Quig about this this morning. We, we taught First Peter like a year ago, maybe two years ago, um, because I'm convinced that First Peter is about to become more and more relevant. First Peter is about living as an alien and a stranger in this world. And for the last couple hundred years, it hasn't felt that strange to be a Christian. It hasn't felt that alienating. But it's, going, it's getting worse, and it will get worse still. And forgive me for thinking we're losing in the third, but... It is, we're in a difficult moment and most of the New Testament is gonna start making a lot more sense than it used to. We've lived, you've lived most of your life in a kind of a triumphant era and the New Testament doesn't know anything about that. It anticipates a triumphant era, but it's like, hey, you know what? This is gonna be hard. It, you're gonna be afraid to open your mouth and to persuade someone to follow the beautiful risen savior 
Paul says, do it anyway, right? Look at what he says and go to, go to the way he ends Colossians because it's the same essential thing. By the way, Ephesians and Colossians are parallel books. If you just read through them together, it'd be interesting. Read one and then read the other and then go back and be like, oh my gosh, look at all this correspondence. But he says this at the very end of Colossians, very similar idea. Um, he says, uh, chapter four, verse three, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Right, same thing. He wants to make, he wants to get it right. He wants to be courageous. He wants to be clear. He wants to do a good job. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Verse five, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Is your language online, in Facebook, in person, when you don't know you're being overheard, designed to draw people to the beauty of Christ or to alienate and push them away? Are you wise in the way you act toward outsiders? Is your conversation always full of grace, have you made it a point to do the work, to study, so that you know how to answer everyone? Can you enter into a conversation with reason and grace and kindness and draw people in instead of just taking them off? Okay, that's Ephesians, big picture. You got the ark? Yeah, you already showed me all your answers, right? Okay, good. All right, so here's what I want to see. If you guys have any questions, we'll kind of build it up. But I have one more question for you. How many books, one, two, three, or four, next, next question here, how many how many letters in the New Testament are addressed to the Ephesian church or the leaders of the Ephesian church? One, two, three, or four? How many letters? One, two, three, four. Okay, so everybody is under the fact that this is a trick question, it appears. So nobody thinks it's one. If there's one, it's Ephesians, but we got that. That's too easy. If you think it's two, what's the second one, you guys? Who said two? Got to own your answer. Yeah, what's the second? You just figured there's another one? Okay, all right. Okay. Does anybody have an idea what, what, a, what a second letter to the church in Ephesus is? Uh, okay, that's an unusual choice for two, but that is a correct answer, right? So why, why, would first, why would we claim that 1 Timothy is a letter written to the church in Ephesus? That's exactly right. Timothy is the pastor at Ephesus. So when Paul writes to Timothy, who is his number one guy, okay? Paul's favorite guy is Timothy. And the place that he sends Timothy is Ephesus, which ought to give you a clue he, he sends his, you know, you, you send your best guy to your most important place. So when Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus, it's like, I'm going to put my best man on the most important place. Ephesus is a real big deal. He goes there, by the way, if you want to read about, it's actually interesting to go back and read, read, the, read, read about Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. When Paul goes to Ephesus, he stays there for like two years, which is forever for Paul, right? He's always bouncing around place to place. But he stays in Ephesus for two years. He loves them. This is very heart-rending scene and I think it's chapter 20 when he tells the Ephesians I'm going to Jerusalem and I'll never see you again the Lord is calling me there to suffer and die and everybody's sobbing and it's a mess but Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus okay so the letter Ephesians is to the Ephesians first Timothy is to the Ephesians what about any others yep Revelation, yes. Okay, but you guys are doing this in, in a strange order because if we said first Timothy did anything else occur to you guys? Second Timothy, okay? So Second Timothy is the same thing, right? So, so when he writes another letter to Paul, I mean, another letter to Timothy, that's, a, that's an additional letter. And this is an interesting little detail here. And then we'll, then we'll go to Revelation. Um, go to, let's see, go to 2 Tim, chapter 4, the very end of it. Um, curious little thing. He says, this is the very last verse of Second Tim, says, The Lord be with your spirit. That's a singular you. Grace be with y'all. That's how that goes. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with y'all. 
And what, he's, what that suggests is the letter is meant to be read to the whole church. So he really is. It's not just to the leader, but it's really to the body through the leader. It'd be like, you know, if Breedlove wanted a message to come to us, he would probably just write to Quig. And then Quig would share with us what Bishop Steve had said. And that's what, that's what Paul is doing with 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. And then one more, Jennifer, was Revelation. And so in the beginning of Revelation, chapters 1, 2, and 3, there are seven letters written to these churches. We preached on this, didn't we? My, oh, my, 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 my. So like six months ago, it all blends. And it's, what's curious is if we were to look at a map of all these cities, essentially it's like Ephesus is here, and then the others kind of form a semicircle around it. So when Paul leaves, when he's dying, or thinks he's dying, at 2 Timothy 4, he's passing the baton to Timothy. He says, dude, it's on you. Good luck. I'm gone. And Timothy's job is to be really the new hub of ministry. And what you see in the letters to Revelation is that he is succeeding, that the, the, the gospel is growing in, in this community surrounding Ephesus. So all that to say, Ephesus is a real big deal. And so this letter has crucial thoughts to a really important community led by Paul's number one guy. He spends a huge amount of time there. And it's just worth understanding what's he, what is his argument to them? What are we to embrace about this vertical, horizontal reconciliation, all the implications, all of the barriers, how we are to live? We would do well to be well read on Ephesians. Okay? All right. Now, all that said, we got a few more minutes. And I'd love to know if we, do we have, does three mean we have three questions, Josh? All right, can you show them to us? And then if we burn through it, then I don't know what we'll do next week, but if you have more, you can send them in. So would the Jews, here's your three questions. Would the Jews recognize the hardness of heart as it related to the Old Testament with Pharaoh and their forefathers? Okay, would the Jews, rec- okay, this is probably about chapter four, as I'm gonna guess. Would the Jews recognize hardness of heart as it related to the Old Testament? Yes. Okay. So I think so. So back in chapter 4 when it says, you know, you've lost all sensitivity, given over to indulgence, and hardness of heart makes you stupider and stupider. Yes. It's, I, would, I would assume, I don't know this, but I would assume that a Jew reading that, when you hear the phrase hardness of heart, you probably would think of Pharaoh. It's a major kind of motif in that whole story, and the Exodus is an enormously significant moment. It is the primary metaphor for salvation throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So the, the Pharaoh story, it might be to you just one more flannel gram in your Sunday school repertoire from a child, but to a Jew, the Exodus was a gargantuan event. And so, yeah, they'd probably be thoughtful about that. And the hardness of heartism is a major idea. And of course, when you see that, nobody wants to be like the Pharaoh right? He's not an imitatable character. And so if you, if you reckon, it'd be like if I'm like, you know, Pete, when you do that, you know who you remind me of is Hitler. Um, you might think like, well, I don't want to remind you of Hitler, so maybe I won't em- embrace that kind of a thinking, right? Okay, so I think that's the answer to that. Number two, uh, is that the same question? Okay. Uh, Ephesians six twelve. while just one verse seems especially key for us in a world where we are aliens. How can we best apply that in a world that sees Christianity as antagonistic? All right, so let's go back to it. How do we live out Christianity in an antagonistic world in light of Ephesians 6, 12? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So let me, let me reflect this back. What do, you, what do you think? How do we, Ephesians 6.12, in this particular world, even in this particular moment, if you don't mind answering, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, Jennifer. Yes, that's, that's a gr- great comment. And, and it's so tempting because it certainly looks like your problem is another human being. It certainly seems like it is. And it is true that like bad arguments should be responded to, but they should be responded to with grace. Um, but I think, that's, I think that's a major factor is that I would be self-conscious of how am I interacting with people. Not only am I falsely believing that other people are my enemy, but am I making it incredibly easy for other people to think that I am their enemy. 
right? Am I posturing myself in such a way that it's like, let's dance? Like, is everything picking a fight? Because you are being, um, there's an instigation going on at all times, right? Have you noticed this? So I'll give you a slightly personal example on this. So Kelly and I had a conversation, I don't know, a week, two weeks ago, something like that. And Kelly made the completely fair, just absolutely fair accusation against me that she's like, Tim, you just complain so much. You just do. You don't, you, it's just like everything is like you're critical and you complain and you just grumble and you're just, you know, moaning about all these things. And when she said it, I'm like, my first thought was, well, it's because everything sucks, you know. But <laughs> second thought was, it's true. It's just true. There's an awful lot of unhappiness and complaint and criticism that just naturally flows out of my mouth. And that's not good, right? That's not, that's not good for anybody. And so I began to think, okay, it's true. That's too bad. What should I do about it? And so there's a number of de- specific decisions that I have implemented since that conversation to try to change that. But one of them, and I'll just have you guys try this on for size, is I have not read the news. I have not heard a word of news. I haven't been online. I have nothing in, since that conversation. So, I don't know, 14 days, something like that. Um, and I recognize that I have that I'm choosing to be uninformed, but all I'm discarding is being misinformed, so it doesn't seem like it's that big of a trade, and I've got a reasonably good guess what's happening anyway, you know? I mean, I could even probably tell you the five things that have happened in the last week, and I bet I'm right, right? And so I, my, my recognition is that the news is not merely data, right? It is, there's an in, news is profitable, and news is profitable because if I can get you, it's an outrage machine, you guys. The whole thing is designed to be an outrage machine. And if I can, it doesn't matter if it's MSNBC or Fox News. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. The thing is designed to gin you up and to get you so pissed that you're going to log in tomorrow to see what your enemies have done. And that whole system is, and I'm, I have read the news 9 billion times in the last 12 months, okay? I'm a super news junkie on my phone. If I got five minutes, I'm flip, 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 read this, read that. And they get good and angry about whatever the latest outrage is. And I just need, I just recognize that it's like having a corrupting influence on me. And everybody seems like my enemy, Jennifer. Like I'm mad at everybody all the time because they're all idiots and they're making terrible decisions and the world is ruined and I could go after it on every side and I just I just had to like I got to step out of this game now maybe I will die without ever reading the news again maybe not I don't know but certainly at this moment like I have been caught in the gears of an outrage machine and it's not it's not helping me to be the husband that Kelly needs me to be it's not helping me be a father it's not I'm not I'm not more informed citizen to vote better. I'm just more angry at everybody. And so I just decided, like, I'm just going to tap out, right? So part of it might be recognizing, okay, in, a, in this kind of a moment, it's just a lot of cost. There's an awful lot of cost. And for me, I, maybe you could bear it better than I could, but I got to a point where the toxicity levels were too high, and I just needed to step out of the stream. It's one option. There may be others different that you need to do. Yeah, Lily? Yes. All right, so Lily, I don't think that got caught on the tape. Let me just try to repeat what she said. So essentially Ephesians 4 is giving really practical advice to this question because it's the second half. It's all practical. Verse 25, therefore each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down when you're angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Uh, Verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up 
according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind. Be compassionate to one. Is any of this practical? I mean, good night, right? And we desperately need this because we do have an enemy who would just love us to all just be at each other's throats all day long, speaking in ways that is the you know, antithesis of all of this. What if that was our, what if we were imitators of God, living a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us? Like, what kind of a change would that take would, would take place in the public square? I'm telling you, man. When when Quig ran, I don't know, seemingly randomly chose, I just teach Ephesians. It's like, what is on, more on point for this moment in our in our lives right now? So I think we should probably stop. Oh, one more. Mike, go ahead, bro. Yeah, and we, and we didn't look at that. Just, since you said that, let's just look at it. We'll, we'll end with this. Go back to Ephesians 6. So much stuff gets cut left on the cutting room floor here, but in Ephesians 6, in the midst of this spiritual armor, it's funny, the one, I don't know, verb, the one thing we're to do in this armor passage is verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the saints, Pray also for me, the one I open my mouth. And so it's like, pray, pray, pray. Like in the midst of this, like, what are we to do? I don't know what to do. Well, I don't know. Maybe sit down and, and ask God, Lord, would you intervene here? Would you do this? Center yourself to remember that it's not about you winning the argument, that actually God is sovereign and he reigns over all things. Sometimes prayer changes the, history, the course of history, and that's good. And sometimes prayer just reminds me that the course of history is under control. And can kind of simmer down all the anxiety that flows up from it. So, okay. Uh, are there any other questions? for? So, well, tell me this. Do you want to do more? Do you, want to, you guys didn't ask anything about a million things that are impossible to understand in Ephesians. So, if you want to. Oh, there's more. There's some, okay, let's do this. If you have the link, if you want to ask more questions, then I'll do this more next week. We'll continue to kind of query through Ephesians 6. And if we run out of stuff, then I'll move on and do something different. And I think Barb wants to say something. Okay, very good. Okay, so she's anticipating that we're done here, so we're done here. Um, and Tom Rowe will make sure that, are you, are you ushing, Tom? So don't leave unless Tom tells you can leave because he has a gun, okay, and it'll be okay. All right, so maybe a little bit more Ephesians next week. We'll go from there. Thanks for coming.